your pew Bible, Isaiah 42, and we read the verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the peoples, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Congregation, we're again going to turn to our Canons of Dort. This evening, we come to the first Head of Doctrine, Article 16, which you can find in the back of your Psalter on page 100. The first Head of Doctrine, Article 16. And the sermon is based on this article of our confession. Those who do not yet experience a lively faith in Christ an assured confidence of soul, peace of conscience, an earnest endeavor after filial or son-like obedience, and glorying in God through Christ, efficaciously wrought in them, and do nevertheless persist in the use of the means which God hath appointed for working these graces in us, ought not to be alarmed at the mention of reprobation, nor to rank themselves among the reprobate, but diligently to persevere in the use of means and with ardent desires devoutly and humbly to wait for a season of richer grace. Much less cause have they to be terrified by the doctrine of reprobation, who, though they seriously desire to be turned to God, to please him only and to be delivered from the body of death, cannot yet reach that measure of holiness and faith to which they aspire, since a merciful God has promised that he will not quench the smoking flax nor break the bruised reed. But this doctrine is justly terrible 
to those who, regardless of God and of the Savior Jesus Christ, have wholly given themselves up to the cares of the world and the pleasures of the flesh, so long as they are not seriously converted to God. We sing in response to the Word of God and our confession, Psalter 398. Beloved congregation, there are certain doctrines contained in the Word of God that cause some believers, at least, to tremble. One of these is the holiness of God. Because God is holy, he cannot and will not tolerate sin. His wrath burns against sin, and his justice demands that sin be punished, as we confess in our Heidelberg Catechism, with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. And that causes and should cause us to tremble. Another doctrine that causes believers to tremble is the doctrine of hell. Hell is described in the Bible as a horrible place, a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is the place where the wicked and the demons and Satan himself will be punished for an everlasting eternity, for their sin, for their rebellion against God, and there is no second chance. And there's no escaping the flames of hell, and that also should cause us to tremble. But if there's one doctrine that causes believers to tremble, perhaps more than any other doctrine, it is the doctrine that we have been studying the last number of weeks, the doctrine of reprobation. Last time we defined reprobation as follows. God's eternal, sovereign, immutable or unchangeable, wise, holy, and mysterious decree, whereby in electing some to eternal life, he passes others by and then justly condemns them for for their own sin and all of this for his own glory. Now, from that definition, we learn that reprobation is a decree of God. It is a decision of God. It is something that God willed, something that God determined from all eternity. And as such, it is what we could say the flip side of the doctrine of election. Election is like a coin. On the one side, you've got election, and the other side of the coin is reprobation. The two go hand in hand. In election, God sovereignly chooses to save some. And because he only saves some, that means that he chooses to pass others by and condemn them to everlasting damnation in hell. Now, 
as I've already mentioned, and as we also mentioned last time, many believers struggle with this doctrine, and rightly so. It is a difficult doctrine. Last week, I called this the horrible decree of reprobation. That phrase, you remember, comes from John Calvin. And by that, he, he didn't mean that the decree as such was horrible because none of God's decrees are horrible. But, but the, the end result for those who do not repent and believe the gospel, it is horrible. The prospect of spending an everlasting eternity to hell. But believers can struggle with this question for another reason. It causes some believers, at least, to worry. And they reason like this. And maybe you're one of them. They reason that if it is true that God sovereignly determines who will and who will not be saved, and it is true, then the question becomes, how do I know if I am or am not one of the reprobate? Now, the fathers of Dort were aware of this pastoral problem. Now, they knew, of course, that strong believers had no problem with this doctrine and were not frightened by this doctrine or its twin doctrine, the doctrine of election. For in the case of the believer, the doctrines of election and reprobation humble them before God and cause them to cry out in wonder and amazement, Lord, why did you choose me? I'm no different. I'm no more worthy of salvation than anybody else in the world, including those whom you have not chosen, including the reprobate. And it is a wonder, and it's amazing to me that you chose me. So for believers, the doctrine of election and reprobation is a cause for daily humiliation and praise and thanksgiving before God. But the fathers of Dort knew that there were others, weak believers, who did have struggles with this doctrine, who were frightened by this doctrine. You see, unlike so many Reformed churches today, our forefathers did not assume that everybody in church, in the visible church of Christ, were at the same level, spiritually speaking. They understood that there are degrees of faith among people in the congregation. There are strong believers and there are weak believers. And it's especially to the weak believers that the fathers of Dort address themselves in Article 16 of our Canons of Dort. Now, if you read this article carefully as we did a moment ago, you'll notice that it is addressing two types of weak believers. The first we could call unassured believers, believers who lack assurance of their faith. If you have your Canons of Dort open to page 100, you can see how they're described there in Article 16. They're described as those who do not yet experience a lively faith in Christ an assured confidence of soul, 
peace of conscience, an earnest endeavor after filial obedience, and glorying in God through Christ, efficaciously wrought in them, and do nevertheless persist in the use of the means which God has appointed for working these graces in us. So these are people, these are members of the congregation who persistently, faithfully, and prayerfully make use of the means of grace. That is the means by which God is pleased to work and to strengthen faith in the hearts of his people. So these are people who are very sincere, and they're very diligent, and very serious, and they come to church, and they never miss a service, and they listen to the preaching very carefully, even prayerfully, and as they're listening to the sermon, they're affected by it. And they secretly, privately pray to the Lord, Lord, apply this message to my heart and to my life. And these are people who pray. They love to pray. They love to come before the Lord and lay out all of their needs before him. They are people who, perhaps hesitatingly, but but still come to the Lord's Supper. Or they feel themselves unworthy to come to the table of the Lord because, because they see so many sins and so many shortcomings in their life, but they come because, because they cannot help themselves. They know that they cannot live without God. And they're looking to Christ, perhaps in some very weak and timid way, but they're, they're looking to Christ and they know that he's the only one who can save them. And they love the Lord. They cannot live without the Lord. And they're striving, albeit with much weakness and many shortcomings, as they themselves will admit, to walk in the ways of the Lord and to live to the glory of the Lord. They do all of these things. And from the perspective of anyone else, we would say, That person is a real, genuine believer. But they don't see that themselves. They struggle with this. They struggle with whether they are indeed a true child of God. Why is that? Why do they struggle? Well, because they do not detect in themselves the marks of a true Christian at least not to the extent, not to the degree that they would like to see and they feel is necessary to see. In the words of Article 16, they do not yet experience a lively faith in Christ, an assured confidence of soul, peace of conscience, an earnest endeavor after filial obedience and glorying in God through Christ efficaciously wrought in them. They don't see these things. They examine themselves, and yes, they have to admit that, that there is certain longings for the Lord, and they see certain, certain marks perhaps, but it's so imperfect, it's so weak. And therefore they conclude, I'm not saved. Some may even count themselves as one of the reprobate. Now, what's the problem with these people? 
Well, the problem is, at least in my experience as a pastor, and I had many such people like this, especially in my first congregation in Monarch, the problem with these people is that they forget that the Lord does not work in the same way with everyone. Some of these folk have been conditioned to believe that unless you have a conversion experience like the Apostle Paul, unless it's sudden, unless it's dramatic, unless you can tell a a story of how the Lord worked in your heart, you cannot and you may not conclude that you are a Christian. And you see the problem. The problem is what Jesus says to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wants, and such is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God works differently in every single person. Every single person is like a snowflake. No two of them are the same. But for some reason, they think my conversion must be like this. It must be like my grandmother's conversion, or my grandfather's conversion, or like the minister's conversion. And if it isn't, well, then there's no hope for me. Then I just have to wait, wait for the Lord to do something dramatic in my life. Now, there are some believers who never doubt their salvation. They don't question for a moment that Christ is their Savior, that he died for them, that they are his children. They don't struggle with with spiritual matters the way that some others do. And when it comes to the Lord's Supper, they... uh, It's not that they take it lightly, but but they have no struggle with coming to the Lord's table. They need the Lord's Supper. They want to be at the Lord's Supper, which we hope to celebrate next week, by the way. But there are these other people who are not so certain. And they're always, it seems, tossed to and fro. Sometimes they think they have true faith, and at other times they do not. Sometimes they think that they are true believers, and at other times they conclude they are not. Sometimes they think that Christ is their Savior, and they are his children, but at other times they do not, and all is dark. And they can identify with the words of Psalm 88, which we sang just before the sermon, dark and lonely is my way. Now, why does the Lord work one way in some and another way in others? Why is it that there are people who, pretty much for their whole life, struggle with the lack of assurance and weak faith? That's a very good question. And I don't have the answer to that question, except to say that God is absolutely sovereign. And he chooses to work one way with some and another way with others. And let us never forget, congregation, that God knows what he's doing. He knows what's best for us. He knows what is the best way for us to follow, also in the way of salvation, in the way of 
faith and our calling is not to question him. It's not to question why he deals with us this way and not in another way. Our calling is to trust in him and to live for him. But what must be said to such people? What must be said to, to people who, who, from all appearances, appear to be true children of God? Even very pious people of God, and yet they don't feel that themselves, and yet they say, I cannot be a Christian. What do we say to them? Are they one of the reprobate, as they sometimes think? Oh, I love the answer of Article 16. And if I can just put it in one simple word, it's no. They're not. Listen again to what we confess here. Those who do not yet experience a lively faith in Christ, an assured confidence of soul, peace of conscience, and earnest endeavor after filial obedience and glorying in God through Christ, efficaciously wrought in them, and do nevertheless persist in the use of the means which God has appointed for working these graces in us, here it comes, ought not to be alarmed at the mention of reprobation nor to rank themselves among the reprobate, but diligently to persevere in the use of means and with ardent desires devoutly and humbly to wait for a season of richer grace. The people whom I have described, beloved, are not one of the reprobate. If I'm describing you tonight, you're not one of the reprobate. Why do I say that? Because you don't manifest the marks of the reprobate. You see, there are marks of election, but there are also marks of reprobation. And one of the marks of election is that the elect care very much about their soul and about eternity. They care care very much about, about the things of God. The reprobate don't. The reprobate, they just live their own life. They live their life as they please. And they think, some of them, at least the ones in the church, they they naively think that all is well with them. And they will openly profess, oh yes, I'm a Christian. When I die, I'm going to heaven. Christ is my Savior. I'm his child. And deep down they think as long as they don't do anything really bad, they'll go to heaven. But not the true believer. True believers may struggle a great deal with lack of assurance. They may detect many deficiencies in their life and in their relationship with God, but they do care about their soul, and they care about the things pertaining to everlasting life. And so, even though they would never say so themselves, they're true believers. They're not one of the reprobate. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that they should be satisfied with where they're at spiritually. And this article 
if anybody concludes in this article that as long, you know, if I'm just, you know, weak and struggling and, and never having assurance for the rest of my life, that's okay because as long as I'm in, that's all that matters. No, anybody who uses the article in that way is misusing this article. The point is we should never be satisfied with where we're at spiritually. We should certainly never be satisfied with an immature and unassured faith. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 1? 5 to 9, he exhorts his readers, and therefore all of us give all diligence, he says, to add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. It's like a train. And the engine is faith, and to faith you need to add, Peter says, all of these other virtues. In other words, you should be working and striving and pleading and praying that the Lord would increase your faith and strengthen your faith and make it stronger, make it more assured. Why does Peter say this? Well, he explains why. He says, for if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the person who's always struggling, who's always wrestling, who never has assurance of faith, he's not a very productive member of the kingdom of God, is he? Because he's always looking at himself, navel-gazing, as we call it, and always worried about, you know, this, and then, you know, whether he's a child of God, whether he's not a child of God, and people that can become so preoccupied with that that they're, they're not of much use in the kingdom of God. Peter says, he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. The point is that if we lack assurance, beloved, if we have a weak faith, we need to plead with the Lord, Lord, increase my faith, strengthen my faith. And if you don't do that, if you're satisfied with having that weak and unassured faith for the rest of your life, there's a problem. And we're not in step with the will of God. Now somebody says, well, how can I grow in faith and in assurance? Well, the answer to that is also in this article. Our forefathers tell us we must diligently persevere in the use of the means. The use of the means. What are those means? I mentioned them already. Coming to church, hearing the preaching of the Word of God, reading your Bible, praying, fellowshipping with the people of God. Attending the Lord's Supper. These are the means that God has appointed for the strengthening of our faith. And if you have weak faith and you lack assurance, the solution is there, beloved. The solution is to make diligent use of the means of grace. And then, you notice what our forefathers wrote here, and then wait humbly for a season of richer grace. I love that phrase. Humbly wait for a season of richer grace. You see, there are seasons in the life of the inexperience of the child of God. There are times when the child of God feels very close to the Lord, feels that the Lord is very near to him, very precious to him. And there are other times, like the psalmist, he feels like he wanders in a dry and thirsty land. And in times like that, our forefathers say to us, don't give up. Don't give up using the means of grace. Keep on using them. And wait. Wait upon the Lord. 
Wait for the Lord to do something. Wait for the Lord to revive your soul again. When a farmer sows his seed, he doesn't expect the harvest the next day. He has to wait, doesn't he? He's got to wait for the sun to shine and and for the rain to fall. Nature, we say, has to do its work. And so it is in spiritual life. If we want our faith to grow, we have to supply it with everything that that faith needs. And when we do that prayerfully, expectantly, then we also trust that the Lord will strengthen our weak faith. So the first category of weak believers is those who have unassured faith. But there's a second category of weak believers mentioned here. And these are what I would call imperfect believers. Imperfect believers. Listen to how they're described in this article. They're described as those who, though they seriously desire to be turned to God, to please Him only, and to be delivered from the body of death, cannot yet reach that measure of holiness and faith to which they aspire. There's a lot of overlap between these people and the people in the first category that we just talked about. These people also love the Lord. They also want to serve Him and live for Him. And they try. They really do try. But when they look at their lives, when they examine themselves, especially in a week of preparation for the Lord's Supper, what do they see? They see so many weaknesses. So many shortcomings, their sins, as the psalmist says, their sins rise up against them. And it becomes like an overwhelming mountain that they simply cannot get over. And when they see all of their sins, and then the devil comes and, 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 he, and, he, and he prods us and he pokes us and he causes us to ask the question, well, if you're really a child of God, how can you commit this or that sin? How can you live in this or that sin? And then we begin to reason things out and we begin to wonder, well, maybe the devil is right. Maybe I'm only deceiving myself. Maybe I'm not a child of God. Maybe, maybe I'm one of the reprobate. Now, every believer can identify with this, at least to some extent. Is it not true, child of God, this afternoon, that when you examine yourself and you you see so many weaknesses, so many shortcomings, so many areas in your life that are not in sync with the will of God, and you wish it wasn't so. You wish you could be a better Christian. You want to be more holy. You want to put sin to death. You want to live your life to the glory of God. But it's so hard. And the three enemies that face us every day, the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh, they're so powerful. And they can trip us up, and they often do. And we fall into sin time and time and time again, and that grieves us, and sometimes it brings us on our knees before the Lord, even with tears in our eyes. And we resolve to do better. We confess it before the Lord. We say, Lord, I'm not going to do that anymore. And what happens the next day, the day after that, maybe next week, the next month, whatever, a sin comes up again. And the cycle begins all over again. Are you a reprobate? 
Are you one of those whom God has passed by in his sovereignty? No. In fact, our forefathers said that people like you have much less cause. Do you see that? Much less cause to be terrified by the doctrine of reprobation. Much less than who? Much less than the people in the first category. Why is that? For the same reason as the people in the previous category, because the reprobate don't care at all about holiness. They don't care at all about sin. Their sins don't bother them. Their sins don't grieve them. They don't. They're not pursuing after holiness. They're not pursuing after living their life to the glory of God with every fiber of their being. They love themselves and they love their sins and they live for themselves. These are the marks, these are the marks of the reprobate. They're not the marks of the elect. What is more, and I love this too, our forefathers point out in this article that a merciful, I'm quoting now, a merciful God has promised that he will not quench the smoking flax nor break the bruised reed. Say, what does that mean? That's a quote from Isaiah 42, verse 3, which we read earlier. Isaiah quotes God as saying, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Who's he talking about here? Who is the servant of the Lord who will do all of these things? He is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you examine the ministry of our Lord in the Gospels, you see this is exactly what Jesus did. And what our forefathers draw attention to is this last verse, verse 3, a bruised reed he will break and smoking flax he will not quench. These are metaphors for weak believers. A weak believer is like a bruised reed and a smoking flax, tender, fragile, easily broken, easily discouraged. And what wonderful truth does Isaiah reveal to us here in this chapter? That he, our Savior, will not break them or quench them. In other words, what Isaiah is saying here is that, that God will not reject the weak in faith because they don't measure up to a certain standard. Does God want us all to be like Christ? Absolutely. The standard is still there. We must strive every day to be like Christ in everything, but when we fail as we often do, that we don't go down that path of saying, well, maybe it's not true for me. Maybe I am one of the reprobate. No! Don't go down that path. That's where Satan wants to lead you. That's exactly the conclusion that Satan wants, to, wants you to come to. Remember, even in those weak moments of failure, 
But the Lord our God will never break the bruised reed and never quench the smoking flax. He will be patient and long-suffering, and the work that he has begun, he will surely finish. No matter how many times I fail. Now again, that doesn't mean we can relax. Doesn't mean we can just be satisfied with low levels of sanctification and low levels of holiness. No, anyone who thinks that is probably not a Christian. A child of God is one who always wants to grow. Wants to grow in faith, but also wants to grow in holiness. It doesn't mean that we can become slack, but it also doesn't mean that we're necessarily one of the reprobate. And that is a huge comfort. And so weak believers, this is the point, weak believers have no reason to number themselves among the reprobate. Rather, they may rest assured that they are children of God. Weak, perhaps. Many shortcomings, many weaknesses, absolutely, but still children of God. And therefore, they have no reason to tremble at this doctrine. But alas, there are those who must tremble and who should tremble at this doctrine. And they're also described in this article by way of contrast. You notice how they're described. They are those who, and I quote now, regardless of God and of the Savior Jesus Christ, have wholly given themselves up to the cares of the world and the pleasures of the flesh. Now, again, you see something really important, congregation. Our forefathers never viewed the visible church as consisting of all true believers, because that's just not true. The visible church consists of believers and unbelievers, converted and unconverted, wheat and chaff. And they must be addressed in the preaching from time to time. The preaching cannot just focus on unbelievers and on the unconverted. No, it has to build believers up in the faith. But there also needs to be a word of warning and a word of exhortation to those who are not in Christ. And our forefathers addressed them here in this article. And they're members of the visible church. They're people who come to church. And at home, they may even periodically at least read their Bibles and and pray to God. They're going through the motions, but their heart is not in it. Their religion does not proceed out of a heart that has been renewed by the Holy Spirit. They're not truly converted to God. It's an interesting phrase. Truly converted to God. You see, there are people who are not truly converted to God. They claim they're converted, but they're not. Because their life doesn't show it. They don't manifest the marks of a true child of God. They deceive themselves into thinking that they're children of God when they're not. And this is a mark of the reprobate. They're not truly converted to God. And that manifests itself in so many different ways. It manifests itself in in how they live, how they run their businesses, how they treat their employees, how they spend their time. It manifests itself in their priorities and and what they watch on television and what their minds are preoccupied with and how they talk, the language that they use, 
the things that they value most in life, it manifests itself. By their fruits you shall know them, Jesus said. It's not that hard to distinguish a true believer from one who's not. And those who are living the lie, those who are deceiving themselves, those who think that they're children of God when in fact they're not, they have much reason to tremble at this doctrine. Why is that? Because as long as they continue to live the way that they're living, as long as they refuse to be truly converted to God, they will die and end up in hell. And the Word of God teaches that the greatest punishments in hell are reserved for those who have heard the gospel, who have heard the warnings of the gospel, but it didn't move them. And they just continued living their life as they always have. Does that describe you, any of you, tonight? Oh, don't think that just because you're in church and just because you go through some outward religious motions that all is well with your soul. The only time you can say it is well with my soul is if you have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you're living for Him. And if that's not true for you, My friend, you have much reason to tremble at the doctrine of reprobation. So what should you do? You You need to turn from your wicked wicked ways. And you need to come to the Lord and you say, Lord, I never thought that I might be one of the reprobate, but I see now that I just might be because my life doesn't measure up to my confession. I don't really love the Lord and I have so many other priorities in my life and in my heart. Oh God, forgive me and change me. Make me a new creature in Christ. And He will. He will. Because He has promised in His Word that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now next week we hope to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You may wonder, what does all this have to do with the Lord's Supper? How can this be a preparatory sermon? Well, let me explain that to you. One of the things we are to do before coming to the Lord's Supper is we are to examine ourselves, as we also read in our form. In other words, we need to discern the marks of a a Christian. We need to discern whether we are true Christians or not. And if we're not true Christians and we come to the Lord's Supper anyway, then as the Apostle Paul says, that we eat and drink judgment to ourselves. So we need to examine ourselves. And what are the things we need to look for? We need to look for, and our form spells it all out, and we'll read that in a moment. Our form spells it out. It says we need to know our sins. Our sins need to grieve us before God. Secondly, we need to be looking in faith to Christ and His atoning sacrifice on the cross as our only hope of salvation. And thirdly, we need to be striving to put sin to death in our lives and walk in the ways of the Lord. And if these things are true of you, you are a child of God, and your place is at the table of the Lord next week. But if these things are not true of you, then you must 
stay away. Now, here's the rub, you see, because there are people who say, well, I do see some of those things in my life, but there's still so much lacking. And the things that you've talked about tonight, that's me. That weak faith, that unassured faith, that, that, that lack of holiness. And there are times that, that I too, like these people in, in Article 16, I, I too question whether I am a child of God. That I am maybe one of the reprobate. Ah, but you see the comfort now, congregation, to remember Isaiah 42, verse 3. God will not quench the smoking flax or break the bruised reed. That means if, there, if, there has begun, if he has begun a good work in you, he will never leave that work undone. He will always finish it. And it may be a long and slow and painful process, but he will finish it. And he will welcome you at his table with open arms. Because, you see, the Lord's Supper is especially for those who have weak faith. It's not for people who have it all together. It's for the people who don't have it all together and who know it. And it grieves them. And they know that their only hope is in Christ. I love how our form puts that. When it says, this is not designed Dearly beloved brethren and sisters in the Lord, to deject the contrite hearts of the faithful as if none might come to the supper of the Lord but those who are without sin. For we do not come to this supper to testify thereby that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves. But on the contrary, considering that we seek our life outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that we lie in the midst of death and therefore, notwithstanding, we feel many infirmities and miseries in ourselves, as namely, that we have not perfect faith, that we are not given ourselves to serve God with that zeal as we are bound, but have daily to strive with the weakness of our faith and the evil lusts of our flesh. Yet, since we are by the grace of the Holy Spirit sorry for these weaknesses and earnestly desirous to fight against our unbelief and to live according to all the commandments of God, therefore, here it comes. Here's the good news. We may rest assured that no sin or infirmity that remains in us against our will can hinder us from being received of God in mercy and being made worthy partakers of this heavenly meat and drink. See what that's saying? It's saying, don't let your weaknesses stop you from coming to the Lord. Don't let your weaknesses stop you from coming to his table. If you're sorry for those weaknesses, and you're fighting against those weaknesses. And there's evidence of that in your life. The Lord says, come. The great Scottish preacher of the 19th century, Robert Murray McShane, once said this. He said, for every look at self, cast ten looks to Christ. See what he was saying? Yes, 
He's saying self-examination is necessary. We do have to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. But self-examination that looks only at self will lead to despair. But godly self-examination looks also to Christ and leans upon Christ and trusts in Christ and says, even though I don't measure up, even though there are many weaknesses and failures and shortcomings in my life, I know that whatever perfection is necessary is met in Him. And I'm looking to Him. And I'm trusting in Him. And I have embraced Him. And those who look to Christ will be welcome at the table of the Lord. Amen.